Uh, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, hopefully Tom Dreesen will be in the room with us. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, This American Podcast, Comedy Edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. And we are back on This American Podcast, Comedy Edition. My name is Tony Visig on ComedySchoolsRadio.com, and I am pleased and excited and thrilled to have someone in the room who I've wanted to meet for a long time. Uh, I know him kind of like from two degrees of separation. We have... Uh, mutual almost best friends but in studio and at the scottsdale laugh factory tonight for two shows tomorrow for two shows sunday as well or just friday and S- no. friday and saturday because sunday's easter so yeah. uh friday and saturday man so limited times to see uh, one of the funniest people in america tom Dreesen. good morning sir good morning tony how you doing i am thrilled uh I, I it took me a little while to find this place uh so if it wasn't for gps we'd have been here on time <laughs> I, you know, I'm still, I still have a fear. I went through a GPS crisis yesterday as I was trying to get across Phoenix during rush hour. So it was, it's like Syria's going, make a left. You are now saving five minutes if you can make it through the worst neighborhood in town. Yeah. Have you experienced that where GPS will it'll say, we have found a faster route, but all of a sudden you're on a dirt road and people are throwing tires in front of your car? I drove through Taco Bell last time. I drove <laughs> right through Taco Bell while people were eating lunch. If people don't know who you are, I know who you are. I want to let people know who you are. Uh, and I've been telling people, I go, this is a gentleman who uh, is from Harvey, Illinois. And I saw, I remember your special. You did a special kind of like where you walk through your neighborhood yeah. and talk through. I remember that special. The last time I saw you in person, however, I got to say this. I was, sta- I was in the Melrose Improv and in the bar at the Melrose Improv was a giant poster of a naked man with tennis shoes and a Cubs hat. And you just saw the man's backside, totally naked, turned around, and it was you. I, I, didn't, I didn't even have tennis shoes. The only thing I had was my cub hat on. Cub hat. And what happened was, I did Letterman one time, and he's been on my buddy for years. And, uh, uh, you know, we started out together. And so I brought him a cub hat. Yeah. You know, he said, I'll always treasure this. And he threw it, you know, like he throws it through the window behind him. Yeah. He said, I'll always treasure this. And he threw it like on the ground. I got up and I threw a chair toward the band. I said, where I'm from, when you throw a cub hat on the floor, it's like throwing the American flag on the floor. Yeah. So we, we, we went back and forth on that. And then I sent him a picture of me nude with just my cub hat. The backside said, you can have everything I got, but don't touch my cub's hat. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, he sent it to every sleaze magazine in America. And I got, you know, old ladies from senior citizens' homes sending me pictures. Would you please autograph to Edith and Edna here at the <laughs> retirement community? And it haunted me. I, I, I regretted so much that I took that picture. But uh, You know, I, I tell you what was funny. I'm, I'm there at the bar. I, there's a picture. And uh, I, I'm taking a drink. And I kind of look to my left. And you were standing there talking to Bud Friedman. And I, I had one of those moments. I go, that guy in the picture right here. And he's yeah. in the picture. <laughs> so, uh, and... Uh, I just want to tell people, because you started doing stand-up, I, I've told people before that you were one of the people who, uh, probably inadvertently, it wasn't by design, but kind of helped start the comedy boom and shape what became stand-up comedy as it still is today, because you were there in the mid-70s at the comedy store when it was all being figured out, when, when all of you new guys were coming along, and you also uh, made history, and it's, it's hard for some people to realize how far we've come we still have a long way to go by being the first integrated comedy team in America. Uh, in 1969, Tim Reed and I went on stage for the first time. We became America's first black and white comedy team. History shows were yeah. the last. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, you know, so, so we, we set out in September 1969. We, we stayed together for six years uh-huh. as America's first black and white comedy team. We wrote a book about it that's now becoming a movie. 
Uh, the movie would probably be called Before Our Time. But what, there were no comedy clubs in those days. So we, we worked all black clubs in the north and the south. We worked all white clubs. The black clubs are affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. Uh-huh. And uh, the 20 Grand in Detroit, uh, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Spear in Chicago, the Dating Club Lounge, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City. Uh, so we, we broke in, and, and, those, and then the team stayed together six years, and then I decided to go alone. Tim wanted to be more of an actor. And that's when I went out to the West Coast in 1975 and started working at the comedy store. I was, had a wife and three kids, left them back in Chicago. I was sleeping in an old abandoned car, a Nash Rambler. It wasn't my car. It was up on blocks. And, 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 and the front seat came down. And I stayed in that car for over 30 days, hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard, begging to work for free every night at the comedy store. And, uh, that, and I was going on stage. When I finally got on, after 30 days of uh, waiting in line, for an open mic night, I finally got on and had five minutes in front of Mitzi Shore. And if I scored, I was going to get on a regular schedule. And if you didn't, it's it's back home. Yeah. And the most pressure I've ever been on. My first Tonight Shows weren't like that. And the pressure of that first t- audition was enormous because in, that, in those days, the comedy store, it's hard to describe the excitement in 1975, you know, in, on, on, on Sunset Strip. Because... All the talent coordinators from The Tonight Show, Merv Griffin Show, Mike Douglas Show, Johnny Carson Show, um, uh, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand, they were all coming to the comedy store looking for comedians. And so the, the, the excitement was, was, and comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. Absolutely. And so uh, I finally got on and, and got on the regular schedule. I did that five minutes in front of her. Got on the regular schedule and became a regular there. And then after about a year, went on to become my my first appearance on the Tonight Show, which changed my whole life, you know. I believe that I, um, uh, it's, it's w- one of the first, I moved to Los Angeles in 1978, and uh, the very first place I ever went, I went on a long walk. I parked my car, you know, I'm from the Midwest, I'm from St. Louis, and so I, first off, I couldn't believe I couldn't find a place to park, and they actually wanted me to pay some places, and, and uh, I went for, and all of a sudden I looked up, I was standing in front of the comedy store, so the first place I ever went uh, for uh, nighttime entertainment was the comedy store, and it was like walking into... I can't describe it. I'm sitting there and coming out on stage. I believe it was you. I know it was Johnny Dark. It was Jeff Altman. It was Jimmy Walker. It was Jay Leno, David Letterman. I remember Letterman picking up a glass and go, five bucks for this? Or yeah. whatever the price yeah. was. I think that was his one stand-up comedy joke. Uh, but uh, it he was, had a good act, by the he way. Did. He did. He had a very good he, act. He, a, he was clever and bright. Yeah. You know, I, I would go on stage every night you know, with all these unknowns. Robin Williams, uh, Michael yeah. Keaton, Gallagher, David Letterman, Jay Leno. Um, the girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I don't know whatever happened to all those people, but I'm here on your <laughs> show. <laughs> but it was, it was an exciting, it's hard to describe. Uh, I've, I've written in many books. There's a book called I'm Dying Up Here. I, I, I recently read it. Yeah. yeah. In I, fact, I, I wanted to bring it up, but go ahead. Well, what, what, well, that book really explains that era, that time, that the comedians, the excitement there, and the comedy store was making millions of dollars a year. They had the Westwood Comedy Store and the, and the Sunset Comedy Store, and the com- comedians, of course, you know, were paid zero, not yeah. one dime, you know. And uh, so we later went on strike, and that's what the book is all about, I'm Dying Up Here, which Jim Carrey just optioned, and now it's going to become a series on Showtime. Uh, the dark side of comedy, and, yeah. and I'm a consultant on that, and I'm also going to do some acting roles on it. And um, you, uh, I mean, you gambled a lot there. I, I was in Los Angeles for two or three months when all of a sudden I pick up the LA Times one day and I see. 
pictures of you and I believe Leno and etc. Uh, out in front of the comedy store picket signs. I went, well, that's wild. I mean, you, you, a lot of you risked a lot because, like you said, the excitement that went on in that club at that time and what it could mean to a career. But at the same time, there were so many guys who were starving or literally you were able to find your way out of the abandoned car. But there were guys having a difficult time doing that while other people were profiting greatly. Uh, so you risked a lot to help, and you were already starting to do well by that. Yeah, but you were see, already working Las Vegas. I was working Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City. I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr., and I would come off the road, and I would go to the comedy store <clears throat> to work on new material for The Tonight Show. You know, The Tonight Show in those days, you had to do a new six minutes every time you did the show. Yeah. You had to come up with new material constantly, and Johnny didn't want you doing material you did before, come up with new material. <clears throat> I ended up doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show, but... Every time I'd come home, I headed straight for the comedy store to work on new material. Uh -huh. But one particular time, <clears throat> I come back, and of course the comedies were being paid nothing. But at that time, the comedy store had the original room. It had the belly room where the girls worked. Mitchie started that. But it had the main room. And that room seated 400 and something people. Yes. And in there, she'd have like Rodney Dangerfield. He'd get the door. He'd get the, or, or it'd be uh, Jamie, uh, Jackie Mason. He'd get the door, <clears throat> whoever the comedian was. Well, when I come back up the road this time, I'm ready to go in the original room, try out new material. They said, oh, Tom, you're in the main room. I said, the main room? I go in the main room, and it's David Letterman, Jay Leno, Elaine Boozler, me, and Robin Williams. And the place was jammed. And they were all new at the time, you know. Now, afterward, I didn't think much of it. I said, wow, this is like working Las Vegas. We go to Cantor's afterward, like all the comedians did in those days, the deli. And afterward, after the show, we're meeting and talking, and Jay came in, Jay Leno, and said, this is BS. You know, that we're not getting paid anything. At least the, those headliners got the door. We should get something. <clears throat> it may have took five of us to fill that room, but we filled the room. So the talk of strike came. What do we do? We want to get paid. And I had been in the JCs back in Illinois, so I knew Robert's Rules of Order, how to conduct meetings. I went to the first two meetings. It was like a madhouse. You know, it's like being in a room with 125 comedians all trying to talk at the same time. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> they, I, couldn't, I couldn't get anything resolved. Nobody got anything resolved. So the third meeting, I said, look, let me chair this meeting, and maybe we can, you know, get some sense of order here. So I began to chair the meetings and say, Gallagher, be, Gallagher, be quiet. Jay, you got the, Jay, you got the floor. Let's put it in the form of a motion, you know. Gallagher's saying, why don't we burn the place down? That's what we should do, burn it down. But finally, I got them organized, and when you got those kids organized, they were bright kids. I came from the streets. I don't have a degree from academia. I got a doctorate from the streets. Yeah. You know, I had eight brothers and sisters, grew up in a shack, five of us slept in one bed. I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers. So I went in the military when I was 17 years old, four years. So I had, I, but I had this, I knew how to put together and form committees and subcommittees and once you got those kids organized they were from colleges yeah you know, they all came out of the out of the universities <clears throat> they were a force to be reckoned with so for eight weeks we walked the picket line it should have been over in 24 hours the strike would have been over in 24 hours if all the comics united but 19 comics chose to cross the picket line 18 guys and one girl and yeah. because of that it delayed it for eight weeks otherwise it would have been over in 24 hours so the eight weeks, I stopped my career, and I walked that picket line. I lost 12 pounds. I'm trying to organize these guys. The first week, they were very excited, but after that, they got scared. Sure. And to hold them together, you know, was, was really difficult. And finally, uh, we, 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 you know, a long story, but we ended up winning the strike. And comics not only got paid at the comedy store, they started being paid all around the country. 
I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna mention that, that you guys by by risking what you did, and and I know that I know that it damaged a lot of uh, friendships. Uh, there were long term and, and uh, deep friendships that I, I hope uh, those those rifts have been healed over time. Although I will tell you that I was at the time this was going on, I was studying at the Strasbourg Institute. And there were still old actors and old directors hanging around there to say they would never speak to Elia Kazan for a different and maybe deeper and more important reason. But I go, you're hanging on to that from the 50s? So um, I know that you guys risked a lot and you risked friendships and you risked everything for a principle and that you kind of created what that then people, we have to pay comics. And then as clubs began to open up across the nation, I made a very good living for 15 years as a touring stand-up comic. And if you guys hadn't done what you had done, and they said, well, comics shouldn't be paid because they're getting exposure. That maybe wouldn't have happened. So it was kind of a big deal. Well, you know, my argument, when I'd sit down and talk to Mitzi, I'd say, Mitzi, look, because I like Mitzi, and I sure. still like her, but it, she, she's angry with me all these years. But I, I have no, I don't keep any animosity. Either. Yeah. I'm a Sicilian. Part of me <laughs> never, you know what Sicilian Alzheimer's is, right? What a, you can't remember anything but the vendettas, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But, but anyhow, but I, I would sit down and talk to her. I'd say, Mitzi, you pay the waiters, you pay the waitresses, you pay the bartender, you pay the guy who cleans the toilets. Why wouldn't you pay the comedians? She said, they don't deserve to be paid. This is a school. But you're charging for people to see us perform. You know? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so long story short, it took a long time to, uh, she just simply would not do it. And then one night, I was laying in bed with my, my ex-wife. I forgot her name. Oh, yeah, plaintiff. Uh, <laughs> but one night I was in bed with her, and, and this was before the strike happened, and, and the comics were talking strike, and I didn't want them to go on strike because yeah. I knew it was going to prolong this thing. And, and, again, I stopped my career. But I laid in bed, I jumped up out of bed and scared the bejesus out of her. She said, I said, I got it. I got it. Why didn't I think of this? I couldn't sleep that whole night. I get to her office in the morning. I'm waiting in Mitzi's office. At 10, she came in. I said, Mitzi, I got it. You're charging $5 at the door. Charge six dollars. That that was back in the day. Yeah. I said, give the comics that one dollar. If there's a hundred people show up, they split a hundred dollars for the night. If two hundred people show up, they split two hundred dollars for the night. I thought that was. She said, no, they mm. don't deserve to be paid. And that's when I went numb. That's when I walked out of the comedy show and went, oh my god. I thought it was about money. It was about control. Yeah. It had nothing to do with money. If it yeah. was money, we could resolve that issue. Yeah. You know. And, uh, and, you know, the trauma that went after that, I mean, when, you know, uh, they burned the improv down. Well, that was, I was going to ask you because there, there, there was a long rumor. Uh, the man is gone now. I, I knew him. But there was a, a comic, very funny guy named Ollie Joe Prater. Yeah, he, he, he threw a Molotov cocktail on the roof. So you're stating here on this show. I'm stating here on this show that Biff Maynard and Ollie Joe Prater burned the improv down. They, wow. They, 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 and I, by the way, I said that when they were both alive. You know, and, and, this, and the only reason I say this <clears throat> is... Before I was in show business, I was a private detective in Chicago. Yeah. I, did a little, I knew a little bit about investigation, but not a lot. But nonetheless, we had a spy inside the comedy store. We had a waitress who would let us know what the opposition was doing. Yeah. She was, she was our informant. <laughs> so yeah. she came to us one day before the strike. She said that Mitchie had a meeting with all of her loyalty, her, her loyalists, you know. And she said the comedians are talking about going on strike. And in the back, Ollie Joe Prider and Biff Maynard... <clears throat> excuse me, we're talking, and Biff said, the comics won't go on strike. They need a place to work. And she said, well, they'll maybe work the improv. And Ali Joe Prater said, what if there was no improv? And yeah. two days later, somebody threw a Molotov cocktail on the roof and the improv burned down, the front of it. 
I mean the back of it. Yeah, which was the Ash Grove before that, a folk music place. Yes. Yeah. But it was a showroom th- that burned yeah. down. The front was still open. Bud Friedman came to me and said, Tommy, if you guys strike me, I'm trying to rebuild this place. I, you could perform in the front of my club. Yeah. If you strike me, I'm dead. I'll never, I, I can't make it. I said, but we don't want to go on strike. No one wants to go on strike. Yeah. Will you, if we work your club, will you sign a, a memo that when you get it built, that you'll, in good faith, you'll sit down and negotiate with us? I didn't say a price. He said, absolutely. He signed the memo that if, if we would work his club while he rebuilt it, he would negotiate. And he did. He kept his word. But however, in the meantime, we go on strike at the comedy store. So while we were walking the picket line, if people were trying to go in the comedy store, we'd say, go over to the improv. There'll be a show later on tonight. David Letterman and yeah. me and Jay Leno and everybody. And that's how it, it all... It was, it was the, one of the ugliest moments in my life. Uh, Tony, I'm not... I, I mean, I, I never wanted this to happen. No. I never... You know, and the other thing is, too, all of a sudden, I start getting investigated because I'm half Italian. Now people are coming to me saying, didn't you, weren't you in the Teamsters in Chicago? And I was. Uh-huh. I loaded trucks. But I dropped my Teamster card, and I later became management. Uh, they said, well, you're, now they tried to involve me because I'm Italian with the mob in Chicago. I was getting that kind of... Uh, that kind of pressure. Oh, all, all kinds of pressure. It, it just annoyed me to no end. However, in retrospect, after all these years, one of the things I'm proudest of the most, not of me, but of those kids... I wasn't risking. I was already on my way. I was doing tonight shows and touring with Sammy mm-hmm. Davis and making money. Those kids who walked that picket line, some of them never got back on stage at the comedy store. Yeah. I'm proud of them for what they did. All around the world, comedy clubs start paying. In London, after we won, in London, we got a memo from London that said, thank you so much, that without them walking a picket line. In New York, the New York comics. The next day, they went into Silver, who owned the Improv in New York, yeah. with Friedman's ex-wife, and they said the comics won in L.A., and the comics in New York want to get paid. She said, fine, let's sit down and negotiate. They didn't fire a shot. So I'm so proud of those kids who walked that line who never got back on stage again, you know. And as you know, a boy committed suicide. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, yeah, I, I, that was all going on when I first moved to Los Angeles. It was fascinating to be a, a new kid from Midwest. You're coming out to Los Angeles and, and witnessing all that. I want to move on to this quickly. Uh, you, you mentioned that you are uh, Italian, and that uh, later on in your career, you got to work with uh, someone. Anybody who, who knows me, and, 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 and but uh, on my Facebook for years, I used to do a little thing, because I'm deep in the paint with this guy with all of his records. I used to put up a picture of an album, say, if it's Sunday, it must be Sinatra. Because on Sunday, when I'm trying to wind down, and I'm doing my books, finishing up, I would put on Frank Sinatra vinyl. And it just... And you, for many years were, uh, I'm going to say privileged, because that's how I feel about Frank Sinatra, privileged to uh, work tour with Frank Sinatra. So what was, just give us an inkling of, of the man and what that was like. 14 years I was Frank Sinatra's opening actor. I like to say Frank closed for me. But <laughs> <laughs> I, we did 45, 50 cities a year. Tony, this is what I'll explain to you what it's like. I'll say, Tony, um, it's five minutes now. You're at the Nassau Coliseum or wherever, arenas, 20,000-seat yeah. arenas. Tony, in five minutes, I want you to go out there. There's 20,000 people out there, and I want you to go stand in the middle of that arena. And for the next 45 minutes, Tony, I want you to hold their attention. Oh, one more thing, Tony. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh for 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing, Tony. I want you to hold their attention and make them laugh. I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 people. No props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no special orchestra, no special lighting, nothing. Just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Tony, not one of them came to see you. (laughs) That sounds like a lot of shows I did. No one came to see me. (laughs) 
but but that's what it was like opening for Frank Sinatra. And and and, and hey, look, and uh, hanging out till six o'clock in the morning. Frank never went to bed till the sun came up. Uh, he. Uh, and he expected you to hang with him. You know, he yeah. had Jack Daniels there. Whether we were on the road or off the road, you know, Frank never went to bed till the sun came up, and he wanted you to hang with him. So it was so exciting, though, staying in his home. I stayed in his home six times a year. You know, we had this great relationship. Uh, I, beca- I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and I spoke at his funeral. And later on, he was like a, a father to me, you know. But uh, in the 14 years I toured with Frank Sinatra, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime. Yeah. Because... Whenever the new networks came to me and, and wanted me to, to go with this ensemble group, it would mean I had to quit touring with Frank, flying in his private jet all over the world. I said, nah. Christopher Morley, the author, once said, success is living the life you want. Yes. And I was living the life I wanted. You know, I, w- I was touring with Frank, plus I was playing golf on a Celebrity Players Tour, a tour that I founded with some other uh, athletes. It was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan, 42 Hall of Famers, as well as show business. It was uh, Jack Wagner, Brian Gumble, Matt Lauer, me, Smokey Robinson. Here I was entering arena. Uh, as a little boy, I was a big sports fan. If you'd have told me one day when you grow up, you know, let me digress. I was shining shoes in bars as a kid, and Frank Sinatra was on the jukebox. Yes. And singing Come Fly With Me. If one day you just said, one day you're going to grow up and you're going to fly with Frank all over the world. And also a sports nut. If somebody said, one day you're going to grow up and get in an arena and you're going to compete with the greatest athletes who ever lived in your lifetime. I'd have said, both of those are impossible. That could never happen. But that was what was happening in my life. So there wasn't a sitcom that I wanted to be on, you know. Uh, and, and I don't regret it to this day. No, no. And you know what? I, I think... If, I think um if if I had had a choice in that opportunity that you had, Dad, I would I would I would have chosen the jet too. Because you're right, you, you you live the life that you choose. Uh, I remember seeing you on the Letterman show one time, and that's where I, I knew the the affection and respect you had for the guy. I just just stuck in my head because uh, David was trying to tease you about Sinatra. He was trying to get you to say something untoward about about Frank Sinatra, right. uh, which you know uh, a lot of people would have taken a pot shot, and you just wouldn't do it. And he was needling you, and finally, and you and you kept referring to him as as Mr. Sinatra, and uh, and then he goes, he goes, oh, what is this, Mr. Sinatra? And you go, what do you call? Because his godfather, of course, was Johnny Carson. Yeah. And he goes, what do you call Johnny Carson? He goes, I call him Johnny. And you looked him right in the eye and go. I call him Mr. Sinatra, and just sh- and just that was it. And then you guys went on, and I go, this guy not only uh, this isn't just a job for this guy, you know. So uh, I I love his music, and I and uh, like you said, you toured. He was a very loyal guy. Mm. Obviously, you toured with him for 14 years, mm. and uh, so you must have killed every night. There was never a chance that you you did badly, or. You- <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was fortunate in this respect. I, you know, I, I, I did, I did over forty Tonight Shows when I met Frank Sinatra. Yeah, you know, I toured with Sammy Davis. I had some. I was a veteran. Had had that happened earlier, I don't know. But I was a veteran by that time, and and uh, and, and and so I, I had some. When I walked out on stage, they came to see Frank. Make no mistake about yes. it. Yes. But I wasn't a stranger to a lot of them either. Yeah. Because they'd seen me on the Tonight Show. They'd seen me on David Letterman, and you know that kind of stuff. You know. David was one who talked me into, because uh, every time I do David's show, he'd want to ask me about Frank Sinatra. And, and I, which, let me digress from there. I realized that traveling with Frank Sinatra, that he was larger than life. And, and, I, and I knew that no matter what I did after I toured with Frank Sinatra, that people were always going to ask me about him. Uh, one time we were landing in his jet in Palm Springs, and the jet then goes on into Van Nuys, where I lived in Sherman Oaks. 
And Frank said, why don't you stay the weekend with me, Tommy, at the house? Because I sit at his house all the time. I said, I can't. It was a Thursday night. I said, I'm doing a Tonight Show on Friday. He said, well, I'll call Freddie DeCorda. I'll get you out of it. I said, <laughs> I'll, I'll get, get you out of it. I'll get you out of it. You know. <laughs> I said, Frank, it's like my 50th appearance, and I didn't want to. I said, they're making a big deal out of it. He said, oh, is, that must be a record. I said, well, no, Rodney Dangerfield, uh, Joan Rivers, David Brenner did more than me. However, it doesn't matter what I do, Frank. I could find a cure to cancer. My obituary is going to say the comedian who toured with Frank Sinatra. No matter what I accomplish in life, that's what my obituary will say. And he said, well, maybe my obituary will say the singer who toured with Tom Dreesen. We both started laughing <laughs> so, like two high school sophomores, you know. But it's come to pass that that's happened no matter where I go, no matter what I do, as this interview. And I don't regret that. Yeah. I resent that. So I, David talked to me and he said, well, doing a one-man show. Because uh, Billy Crystal was doing a one-man show on Broadway. Yeah. So I wrote a one-man show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. So I do stand-up comedy for like 30 minutes. Let me give you the, the scenario. Yeah. I go, I've been doing it in theaters all around the country. The theater goes dark. And then on the screen, Dennis Farina narrates a video of my life, about three and a half minutes of my life, of all what I've done in my life. And Another then, Chicago guy. The Chicago guy, yeah. God rest his soul, who yeah. lived here in Scottsdale. He did, right? yeah. yeah. And anyhow, it narrates my life. I walk out and I do about 30 minutes of stand-up comedy, then I segue over to a bar that has a bottle of Jack Daniels on it. I tell a funny story at the bar, and then all the lights go out and Frank comes on the screen singing, it's quarter to three, there's no one in the place except you and me. And I let that mood set in, and then when, when he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road, the light hits me and now the spot hits me and the audience is in a bar with me and I've come home. And I tell him the first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago, and he was on the jukebox. So I take the audience from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox on the south side of Chicago to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills. So I take them on that journey, and as I'm telling the stories, pictures are coming on the screen authenticating the stories, as well as video of Frank and I. And it, I have them laughing, 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 and then I have them in tears at the funeral, then I have them laughing in the closing monologue. And then I say to them, at the end, I, I toast them and I say, I wish for all of you, what Frank Sinatra wished for you, the very last song he ever sang, is that the best is yet to come. And as they're leaving the theater, Frank Sinatra's singing, the best is yet to come, you know, and that's the show. Now I said all that to say to every comedian listening to this show, I believe that every comedian has a one-man show in their, in their brain, a one-man show in their heart, every comedian. And today, comedy clubs are getting worn thin, and you can't make a good living out of them. You can struggle. You won't go anywhere. Every comedian out there should listen to what I'm saying and put your own one-man show together with your monologues, with your comedy, but your journey. No one's had the same parents as you, the same background, the same childhood. And, and, and let me say this. I, I always, I have them laughing and crying in my show, and then I bring them back laughing. And I always wanted to do that because I only saw two comedians ever do that. Red Skelton and Richard Pryor. And I th saw Richard Pryor where he had the audience on the floor laughing, and then he had him in tears. And then he brought him back, and I went, whoa, that's challenging. I want to do that one day. And, and I think every comedian has that in him. Because on the other side of the thin side of laughter are the tears. Yes. The heartbreak. You know? Yeah. Excellent, excellent advice. Uh, and I just want to mention, like, what you did with comedians in the 70s to help them get paid, uh, people don't realize that uh, Frank Sinatra was an important part of uh, the civil rights movement in the 60s. And that oftentimes great entertainers, uh, when they say still waters run deep, there's more to the man than what you see on stage. Tom, uh, I, can't, I can't tell you how happy I am that um, uh, we consider this a, per a favor. 
that you. I, I was writing to Joey, going, "I'm sure he's going to be busy, but please, Joey, if we could just have him come in for a couple minutes." Joey, the manager of the Scottsdale Laugh Factory Artist Weekend. So I can't tell you, this is uh, uh, you made my you made my day, you made my week, you made my month. I appreciate it so much. Well, I pre- you know, I, I do <clears throat> motivation speeches around the country for corporate America. But I do one specifically just for comedians, and I don't charge them. I, I've done it in Chicago. I've done it in L.A. I've, I've done it in Philadelphia. I've done it in New York. But it, I, it's called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. And I talk on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. Because this business that we're in, stand-up comedy, it, 85% of all stand-up comedians are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved wrecks. Rex and the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell a joke. I like to think I'm in the latter, but never trust the guy who tells you he's sane. But, yeah. But, um, and so I try to encourage them. This is the greatest profession on the planet. And I explain to them throughout with motivation that why they're the luckiest people on the planet, that you can get up on a stage and you can make people laugh. And for that, they will become healthy. It's not only, uh, uh, we know that through Norman Cousins who wrote yeah. the book, The Laughter Math. And anyhow, and then so I, I want to encourage them on this journey, but to enjoy the journey. There's a lot of joy in being a stand-up comedian. This is my 47th year in show business. My goodness. And, and I can't tell you how happy I am to be in this profession. And I want them to be happy, and I want them to live happy, healthy lives. Because they're the saviors of our planet, you know. Yeah. When, when we lose, when a nation loses its sense of humor, it will decay from within. When an organization loses its sense of humor, it will decay from within. And when a human being loses their sense of humor, it will decay from within. A sense of humor is not when you have the ability to laugh at other shortcomings and misfortunes. It's when you have the ability to laugh at your own. And it's the greatest gift that God can bestow upon a human being is a sense of humor. Fantastic. You know what? You know what? I uh, you, you kind of you kind of uh, inspired me once again. I'm just listening. I'm going, and I'm actually looking at uh, uh, my uh, my producer. Who happens to be my wife Shirley sitting there, and because uh, you mentioned that, and I just kind of looked at her and went, "Wow, this is some of the stuff that we talk about." And we go, oh, "I don't have time. I'm too busy." We do this. It's just really inspirational. Thank you so much, Tom Dreesen. He is at the Scottsdale, and we want to get. Uh, uh, do you have a website where we can get information about your one man show sure. and everything? TomDreesen.com. And it's real, real simple. It's D R E S E N. Everybody spells my name wrong. They spell S O N. But it's D R E S E N. And TomDreesen.com will tell you where I'm at all the time. And well, we're gonna we'll post your stuff on ComedySchoolsRadio.com and then help uh, to increase awareness about you to people who may not and they should. You, uh, Tom Dreesen, is at the Scottsdale Laugh Factory uh, tonight for two shows. Saturday for two shows uh, only tonight and tomorrow night. Uh, you can find out all about it at scottsdalelaughfactory.com and it's at the coolest corner in all of Scottsdaleville Scottsdale and Shea Tom Dreesen, thank you very much sir we'll be right back Uh, you're listening to This American Podcast Comedy Edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com What gold won't bring you Happiness and your